Hi, and welcome to Science Distilled, a podcast based on the lecture series of the same name. It's where we break down concepts from cutting-edge science and research and learn how they apply to the world around us. I'm Paul Boger. And I'm Michelle Matus. On this, our very first podcast, we need to talk about something that's completely reshaping our understanding of the world around us. Climate change is becoming a reality. According to NASA, over the next century, our planet is likely going to see some pretty significant changes. We're already seeing rising sea levels due to the melting ice caps, along with storms that are stronger and more frequent every year. And for people like us living in the American West, the snowpack is becoming less predictable. Summers are longer and hotter, and severe droughts are pushing us to become more reliant on water reserves. And perhaps most notably, those hotter, drier summers are resulting in more and more wildfires. Not far from where Paradise once stood, many come to post names and photos of the missing. A list growing every day, 100, 298, soaring to more than 600 unaccounted for. This past week has brought dramatic weather events around the world. The Mendocino Complex, which is over 201,000 acres this morning. And we turn now to the West Coast, where the Thomas Fire continues to burn in Southern California. It may soon set the record as the largest fire in the state's history. Fourteen days in, the flames continue to burn in bone-dry, windy conditions. So 2018 was among the worst years ever when it came to wildfires. Roughly 8.5 million acres of land burned across the United States alone. And in California, 98 residents and six firefighters were killed from wildfires just last year. Now, you know, it's still up for debate on whether humans can reverse the global warming trend. But what is clear is that the world is at a tipping point. Okay, so as the world around us literally changes before our eyes, how can we begin to fix these issues? Well, to do that, it's important to understand just how strong our ecosystem really is. We need to find out what its resiliency is. In today's episode, we're going to talk about just that, resiliency. The topic was discussed earlier this year at the Science Distill Lecture Series produced by the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum and the Desert Research Institute, both in Reno, Nevada. Dr. Scott Thomas and Kevin Baddock spoke at the event and afterwards with KUNR about resiliency and what that means for our planet. So if you're like me and are scratching your head on what resiliency is and how it pertains to our climate, we'll let Scott Thomas take it from here. Well, there's a lot of different definitions for resilience. If you're a uh, football coach and you know, you've got a running back who makes it to the football field every practice and, and you know, doesn't really get hurt a lot and shows up on Saturday and scores three touchdowns, you say he's a resilient uh, football player. So that was Scott Thomas. He's an ecologist with the Desert Research Institute in Reno. And, and the first of two experts on this episode, according to him, when we talk about resiliency, we're talking about this idea that everything in nature has a natural ability to maintain its integrity, whether that's good or bad. Okay, so I get resiliency as it relates to sports, but considering this is a science podcast, how does it relate to science? If you're an engineer, you think about resilience being... Uh, what kind of stresses might be placed on this bridge? I want to build a bridge that's going to span this river, and I want it to last 50 years. There's certain kinds of you know, materials I need to use, and you think about things in terms of how quickly uh, a gust of wind or an earthquake or something, uh, how that's going to affect the bridge and how quickly it could snap back to where it originally was. And ecologists, which I'm an ecologist, ecologists think about resilience in terms of, 
you have this whole system, an ecosystem, uh, a system with people and all these uh, natural elements involved, and everything's changing all the time. And you have to look at all these different factors. It's like you're juggling a hundred different things at the same time. Nothing ever stands in place and everything's affecting everything else. So resilience for ecologists is all about looking at how the system as we know it might, with certain stressors, go over some sort of a tipping point. So essentially what he's saying there is that the natural world tends to be fairly stable, meaning that if left alone, ecosystems will remain relatively balanced. And while there may be some flux over time, some changes, whether it's a a tree popping up here or there, the basic structure of that system will remain intact. That is unless something happens to change it, right? Exactly. And that's what I discussed with Dr. Thomas. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that nature does trend toward resiliency, but it's not necessarily the resiliency that we as consumers of those resources typically may want to see. Well, that's a great point. I mean, we we like things to happen, you know, this month, this year. We like setting ourselves up to be comfortable. You know, long-term systems are resilient, but we all know there's a lot of examples of long-term degradation and it might take a thousand years, 10,000 years or more for something to come back. So it may help to think about it this way. Say you've got a ball that's perched up on a hill. Now left to its own devices, that ball is just going to sit there, but push it, maybe even just a little bit, and that ball will roll downhill coming to rest somewhere new. Okay, so once there's some event, whether it's a flood or a fire or an earthquake, or human interference like with climate change, The balance of an ecosystem may go awry, throwing everything off kilter. Right. And all of the evidence suggests that the entire world is facing a tipping point, and it appears that we're undergoing one of those major shifts due to climate change. So it begs the question. How delicate is the system here? You know, it's it's a mixed bag. I would think that any place that has relatively small amount of rain per year is going to have certain challenges that if you had, say, a lot of precipitation back east, you have a lot more ability to bounce back because, you know, water is so important to our our vegetation systems. We're in a place where we're along some earthquake faults. So from a not so much a natural resource perspective, but just from a societal perspective, that's an imminent threat. And uh, we have to be cognizant of that. And obviously, everybody's been thinking about the wildfire threat for a long time, but especially with some of the uh, last couple of years, the events over in California and locally. I think that sitting here in Reno, we're doing pretty well because at least we don't have to import water from great distances like they do uh, in Southern California. I do a lot of work with the folks down there and in Arizona, and that's a whole different situation. You know, when you build cities and concentrate people in places that don't have long-term water, Uh, You're setting yourself up for a lot of challenges in the future. You know, the more people you add, uh, and as years go by, and you have more and more stresses on the system, whether it be natural stresses or or human-induced, you get to a point where you get perhaps closer to those tipping points I was talking about. Overall, Thomas says it's much easier and cheaper if, instead of trying to fix a system that's reached a tipping point, people work to maintain the current balance. And ultimately, the more robust an ecosystem, the more likely it is that we'll be able to keep it that way. But how do we know how resilient a system is and where those tipping points are on a smaller scale? You know, for that, we're going to have to ask Kevin Baddick. K-E-V-I-N-B-A-D-I-K. I'm a rangeland ecologist. 
for the Nature Conservancy. Over his career, Dr. Baddock has worked to create models that can help us better understand how certain actions can affect large-scale land management. He uses what's called a state-in-transition model. State and transition models, they break vegetation down into two kind of categories. There's the state, or kind of what's the current vegetation that's there, and then there's the transition. So what are the different types of actions or ecological processes that can cause a state to shift from one state to the other? And so that conceptual underlying is what's built into the software and then what we add to that is this ability to kind of randomize and tweak the rates at which these transitions happen. And so basically if you want to think about it we have this state and transition model and then every time a, a state may change we roll some dice in computer land and depending on how those dice roll out depends on what we actually shift to. And we can control other factors like uh, management, like I said. So how much fire suppression is going in those landscape? How is climate impacting fire? So when we roll those dice, sometimes we were rolling six-sided dice and sometimes we're rolling ten-sided dice. And so we can kind of manipulate those based on the science that other people are putting in, are putting out there, in order to really calibrate this thing to be specific to the landscape that we're studying. So what are some of the things that you can look at, drought and um, like bark beetles and stuff like that, insects, you know, is, are those things that you put into the model and, and play around with? When I show people all the parameters that go into these models, their eyes just kind of roll. We can put in most changes that you can think of. So we have insect tree, you know, um, uh, we have diseases that impact trees. We have insect outbreaks. We have floods. We have fires. We have... You know, when you have a really wet year in terms of snow, that has impacts on vegetation. So that has to be incorporated in the model. We have distance from roads. This thing has become increasingly complicated as we become more comfortable with the model and kind of keep seeing how can we push it out to answer the next series of questions. So with all of that data that he has, Baddock can make determinations on how to best manage certain areas, something humans have not done a great job with. You know, take wildfires, for example. For most of time, fires have been a natural way an ecosystem could regulate itself. Blazes would ignite, clear growth, and then leave the land available for new vegetation. But as settlers moved into the West, fires were no longer allowed to burn. Suppression became the name of the game, leaving the heavily wooded areas crowded with fuels. A brush and forest fire that spread with explosive speed menaces the swank Hollywood colony of Malibu. After three days, the fire was only 50% under control. 2,000 men battled along a 42-mile front to hold back the flames which had already destroyed 29 homes and scorched 18,000 acres. Among the houses in the path of the blaze but saved were Bob Hopes, Ronald Regans, Jackie Cogans, and Glenn Fords. Lou Ayer's $50,000 home was destroyed. Fire, believed to have been caused by arson, started on the inland slopes of the Santa Monica Mountains, then raced quickly toward the sea. It cut a swath of destruction eight miles wide across ranch lands and down half a dozen canyons lined with homes. When high winds that whipped the flames along at a furious pace slackened, hopes mounted that the disastrous fire would soon be mastered. It's something we've seen time and again. Take that Malibu fire, for instance. Since the 1920s, that area of California has experienced, on average, two wildfires per decade. The largest was the Dayton Canyon Fire in 1956. 
That was until 2018, when the Woolsey Fire burned 97,000 acres, more than double the historic Dayton Canyon Fire. It's all part of our changing ecosystem. One errant spark is all that's needed, and you're well on your way to a catastrophic wildfire. All right, so look into your crystal ball for me. And, you know, if we're continuing on the path that we've been on um, for the last 50-some-odd years, you know, what will this area look like in the future? Well, and, you know, and this is, a, this is where it becomes really interesting because there's two things that are two big things that are playing into our forest right now one is the changing climate in the background and that's really going to impact fire obviously the other one is that we've become really good historically at fighting fires and putting out fires and this is a landscape that naturally wants to have some fire in it and the more that we don't allow these kind of disturbances to kind of continually thin the forest the more likely it is that we get a bigger fire. So those two things are really interacting. And so if I'm looking into the future, what I'm seeing is, is, a, is, a, is a future where fires want to happen because of climate and the fuel is now available to them. And so in a good-looking future, what we see is a lot of investment into our forest itself to help try to bring, that, those, to bring those forests back, back into a more natural range. Um, this may mean that there's more fire on the landscape in terms of surface fire than we, we see to today. But if you look at the data and you look at studies from across the Sierra Nevadas, what we tend to see is that if we allow a little bit of surface fire and some other restoration work on these landscapes, um, what we tend to see is, is fewer of these bigger fires, these more destructive fires. Um, there are trade-offs. There are sacrifices on both sides in terms of you know where to spend dollars and things like that. But what we're seeing is you know, a kind of a short-term maybe harm in terms of these surface fires versus the longer-term harm of a really catastrophic large fire. Human encroachment into wild spaces and invasive species are also pushing ecosystems closer to that tipping point we keep hearing so much about. Take this for example. The vast open ranges of the American West may have no greater threat than a small little plant known as Bromus tectorum, better known as cheatgrass. Where did cheatgrass come from, and, and what threat does it actually pose? Well, cheatgrass is a fascinating story. It's originally from Eurasia, so kind of Central Asia area. And so it was probably introduced not intentionally. If you've ever walked through a cheatgrass kind of field, you know how much those seeds will stick in your socks. And so that's probably how it was introduced in the West. And so one of the things that it does is that when it comes up, especially after a fire or some kind of disturbance, it really outcompetes all of the natives. And so what we tend to see in areas where cheatgrass is pretty prominent is that it's the, the only thing that tends to grow there. Once it dies, it now it has this standing biomass, and it causes, it shifts the fire behavior. So now there's a lot more fuel, and there's a lot more continuous fuel. So in areas, especially that are kind of sagebrush dominated, we see these shifts to very long frequencies of fire or long kind of returns of fire to very rapid ones. And in some cases, they, we think that fire can occur you know, within every three to five years because of the presence of cheatgrass. And it's already played a part in some of the record-breaking fires that we've seen, specifically 2018's Martin Fire. It's a blaze that burned more than 680 square miles, the largest in Nevada history. But that low-laying brush isn't content to stay in the ranges. As invasive species are wont to do, cheatgrass is spreading, essentially throwing the resiliency of huge swaths of land completely out of whack. 
in lower elevations, one of the things that we're noticing, and, I, and talking with our Forest Service um, land managers out this way, is they're noticing that cheatgrass, which is a non-native species and a really big problem in the Great Basin, is starting to creep into some of our lower forest systems. And so in a lot of places, what we might expect to see is that where once it was Jeffrey Pine is now more dominated by cheatgrass, which tends to outcompete some of our native species. As you get up in elevation a little bit, what they're thinking under climate change kind of scenarios, as it gets drier and we have more fires, we might see a shift from those Jeffrey pine forests to some of the native shrubs. So things like um, tobacco brush and manzanita. And so we th we're thinking that that's where we might see. And one issue with that is that those plants tend to burn even more frequently and they tend to burn hotter than a, a, an intact Jeffrey pine forest. So what can be done about it? That's the ultimate question, right? Over recent decades, land managers have begun using controlled burns to help clear land and prevent blazes. But as the climate continues to change and water becomes even more scarce, it's going to take more and more to ensure that the places where we live continue to thrive. In recent years, public and private entities have taken steps to limit greenhouse gas emissions that have put us in this predicament. In 2015, more than 190 countries signed the Paris Climate Agreement, which outlines goals to keep global temperatures from climbing no higher than 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That 2 degrees Celsius is what many scientists believe may be an irreversible global tipping point. To further muddy the waters, the politics of climate change are far from settled. Despite recent polling that shows a majority of Americans believe climate change poses a threat to the nation and the world, the Trump administration in 2017 signaled that the U.S. will withdraw from the Paris Agreement. In the wake of that announcement, several states, including California and more recently Nevada, joined together to form the U.S. Climate Alliance, which strives to uphold the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. So, as we move closer and closer to that two-degree tipping point, our population is growing and so is our awareness of our impact on the world around us. Scientists like Kevin Baddock and Scott Thomas hope to use modeling to help us not only understand what's going on right now, but prepare for the future, and to become more resilient through understanding the interconnection of all the factors that play into the climate crisis we currently face. Scott Thomas, for one, thinks we could do a better job. It's early days for us to, to make ourselves truly uh, you know, sustainable, and, and resilience is a part of being sustainable, and, and at at the same time, uh, our population is uh, growing and we're going to have more than 9 million people in 2050. So where are they going to go and what are they going to need and what's, what's all the waste and everything that, that comes from all those people and all the services provided to them and all the businesses that they work at? Um, and where does it go? and How does it affect things? You know, we're already having to do a lot of the environmental um, planning for, be, you know, because of laws that date back to the late 60s. And we're pretty good at that in general. A lot of folks would say we're not good enough. A lot of folks would say, well, we've made a heck of a lot of progress. Our rivers aren't burning anymore. So, you know, you could debate how far, how much farther we need to go in that. But in general, we do a pretty good job at that. But what we don't do as good a job at is seeing how it all connects together and how what we're doing has consequences maybe 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years down the road. And if we just take that broad approach and look forward far enough and maybe plot some scenarios of how things might play out, that forces us to think a little bit differently. And I think we can do that a lot better than we do it now. 
Well, that'll do it for our first episode of Science Distilled. If you have any comments or questions, let us know. I hope you'll join us for our next episode of Science Distilled, where we'll learn about how first responders' thoughts about fire affect their decision-making on the line, where things can change in the blink of an eye. They have to very quickly and collaboratively make decisions in the face of intense risk. And this is exactly what the Art of Rhetoric was designed to do. And probably there's no group for whom it's a higher stakes, more consequential, more daily activity than firefighters. Special thanks to the Discovery Museum and the Desert Research Institute for their collaboration on this podcast. The music you heard in this episode was Amsterdam by Lasers, provided by the Free Music Archive. Head to KUNR.org for more information on this episode and all our work. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Michelle Matus. And I'm Paul Boger. Thank you.